Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the final word. Jeff Lemon coming to you from Brisbane where the rain is thundering down on a corrugated tin roof and the thunder is rolling through the background every 30 seconds. So I thought just to prove that I am actually in Brisbane, I should give you the full sonic landscape. I got out of hotel quarantine today and I'm in an actual Queenslander up on the back veranda with the corrugated tin overhead playing its melody and uh, smelling the fresh rain in the air at the end of September as the tropical summer thinks about coming on. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate... They just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus. For all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to this is the final word. Story time on the weekend with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. I'm coming to you from Brisbane. The thunderstorm has passed. A few planes may be going overhead now and again, uh, but that's all part of the sonic tapestry. Adam Collins is in London at the Bob Willis Trophy Final. And this weekend is a, a very different story time where we're not doing Nerd Pledge. We're not doing numbers back into history. We're looking at the story of Dean Mervyn Jones, who died a couple of days ago now. And, you know... <laughs> A death that's really shocked everybody in cricket, I think. You, you don't expect your, your your childhood heroes and your stars of the game to disappear at 59 years of age when it seems like you've got a lot more time with them. So it's been a, a really sad 24 hours or so since the news came through and, and a really surprising time, Adam. Yeah, hi, Jeff. I think that, well... <laughs> We've had a lot of time to think about it, I suppose, because there have been all these eulogies and tributes and obituaries and you, know, you and I have both written about it and talked about it and been interviewed about it and, and so on. And I, I sort of can't find a way to escape the idea that we got so lucky to have Dean Jones as a childhood hero and icon. For me, my love of cricket, as deep as it is, is hugely influenced by Jones by Dino. I mean, there's no point calling him, Jace. He was Dino. I mean, my first two cats were called Dino. There was Dino 1, then there was Dino 2. <laughs> and that's 
a small insight as to how he was seen by people of a certain age. And I think perhaps, Jeff, it might be, uh, you know, if you were maybe 33 or 34 now, you might, that might be as young as you could be to fully appreciate what it was where well, mm. I'm going to be 36 and 37, something like that now. All the way through to about 45, I reckon, Dino was probably your childhood hero. And that meant that you rode the wave with him on the upside and you rode the down with him uh, mm-hmm. as it came crashing down, as it, as it often did, when he was left out of the test side and then dumped from the one-day side, then recalled to the one-day side, then made that retirement from international cricket kind of from nowhere in South Africa in 1994, then makes the comeback in 94-95, should have played one-day international cricket again after that when he was still thought of as one of the best mm-hmm. white ball players, if not the best white ball player in the world but they looked past him by that stage the injustice of the 96 world cup all of these bits and pieces we remember we don't need the numbers to tell you the stories because we just know the stories because they are indelibly stamped on our cricketing consciousness and will be forever and yeah I, i feel really blessed and lucky that growing up in melbourne at the time that i did that we can really feel like that was something that was part of us yeah it was his life but his life was a big part of us as well yeah, it was it was interesting talking to you on the phone about this, you know, last night at, at the time that we're recording this, we were trying to work out, you know, what it was about Dino that was more special than anybody else. And the conclusion we tentatively arrived at was that he was the player who brought excitement and swagger and confidence in a time when that wasn't really part of Australian cricket. You know, there was an era of excitement with Lily and Thompson in in the 70s and then it it really kind of fell over for the best part of a decade and and there were a lot of players who were sort of battling sort of players who did their best but they weren't flashy dramatic players. They weren't, you know, you you weren't rushing in excited to see Graham Wood open the batting or, you know, what's Graham Yellett been up to today or, or, you know, even Alan Border was such a fighter. He wasn't necessarily, you know, he was someone you admired but he wasn't someone who you were necessarily thrilled to, to see take on the bowling. And then there is this, there's this excitement in Australian cricket from the the mid '90s on, where Shane Warne comes into the game and Adam Gilchrist, and um, it, and suddenly it becomes quite a high octane game. But Dean Jones was the one before that who who brought that excitement and and who who was always the player out of the eleven. He was the one that you wanted to see, you know, what he was going to do. Today. He was the bridge uh, in a lot of ways between a, a relatively amateur setup. And the professionalism which we now see through T20 cricket and, you know, more millionaires than you can poke the proverbial stick at. I mean, as Daniel Brady put in his obituary, like Jones's international career ends before players are even earning six figures, which just gives mm. a... I mean, I'm not trying to say they weren't wealthy in context then, but compared to the wealth that players earn now, and Jones would have been a T20 superstar. And the reason we know that is he played 50 over cricket the way we now identify as de rigueur in 20 over cricket. He was doing it 25 to 30 years ago. Uh, the way that he sprinted between wickets, it was a whole of body experience, hand on the ground, blind turning, any marginal gain that he could get, he would look for. And that extended to the way that he fielded, the way that, as Russell Jackson pointed out in, in his obituary on the ABC, those sunglasses that he was derided for wearing, the first fielder to wear sunglasses, it was because it got him that marginal edge so the sun wouldn't be in his eyes. I mean, it sounds straightforward and you know, logical mm. now, but it wasn't then. You know, the, the iconic yeah. side of the chewing gum and the, and the county bat and the kookaburra bat, 
and the bareheaded batting and the batting in the baggy gold, which was a thing back then, not so much a thing now. The wide-brimmed hat, the fierce way he would walk down the pitch at seam bowlers before that was a thing, even as threatening as those West Indian quicks were at the time. Uh, He's dancing at spinners routinely, whether it was an aggressive move or a defensive move, the way that... He used his feet to get down the track and defend. And those moments of controversy that punctuated the career on the field, the handled the ball incident against India in 91-92, I completely forgot about that until looking at it again last night. You could not look away. Everything that he did was Mm. compelling. Everything that he said was newsworthy. I mean, I watched a couple of interviews back last night from when he was in the wilderness, so to speak, as a a state captain pushing to get back in in his early mid-30s. And he was saying things that you could never get away with saying now, but he did because he was Dino. Having a testimonial game when he hadn't even really retired. I mean, he gets away with it because he's Dino. (laughs) He was Victorian cricket, and indeed for a long time he was Australian white ball cricket. And the way that he was an innovator with the way he played the game, you know, the fact that, and I think, again, this might have been Jared Kimber, David Boone and Dean Jones were able to coexist in the same batting lineup. That tells you almost everything you need to know. This was David Boone's era, Mm. yet Dean Jones was playing in it as well and moving it forward and forcing it forward into what we now consider to be day-in, day-out, short-form cricket. Well, it wasn't then, and Jones made it so. Yeah. We're going to use the story time format today to... Have a look at the story of Dean Jones. These are you know, things that you may have read over or listened over over the last couple of days, but we think at a time like this, these are the times to tell the stories. So uh, buckle in for the next little while and we're going to look at it through the lens of the numbers as we like to do on story time. Uh, Adam Collins will not need any help to decode any of these numbers because they're <laughs> tattooed on yeah, his Yeah, and the funny thing is, just before we launch into this, Perhaps the best compliment you can pay Jones, the stylist, is that his numbers don't almost matter a tremendous amount. I mean, there there are standout numbers, mm. but I mean, who really cares what Dean Jones's batting average, as healthy as it was, turned out to be? It was the way that he did it. I'm, I'm at the moment watching Alistair Cook make his way to a century in a first class game, and as brilliant as Cook has been accumulating runs, we view him through the prism of his numbers. We look at the consecutive test matches, the runs he made, the average he did it at, um, the tons he scored over the period of time that he did, and we go, champion. With Dino, we don't go, well, he you know, made 20,000 professional runs and or whatever else it works out to be and 70-odd yep. hundreds. No, we don't even talk about those numbers. We, we This is the first time we've even mentioned numbers and we're 10 minutes into our conversation because with him it was about yep. the, the aesthetics of what he was doing. It was the intangibles that made him such a delight. It was, yeah, it was style over substance, even though he had tremendous amount of substance and he loved the traditional form of the game more than any other, which is a, a bit of an irony, really, when you consider that he's known as a white ball player. Well, he said once that he'd rather... I think it was something like he, he would rather miss 101 days if it meant playing one test match because that's, that's how he thought, how his brain was wired as a player. So, mm. yes, we're going to do this via numbers, but, yeah, it, it is um, a, a, a slight quirk that numbers don't even start to tell the Jones story. We have discussed on the show a couple of times before um, the, the fact of you rocking up to watch games at the MCG wearing a, a singlet painted with the message Dino one day king um, so so now now is the time now is your day your day and his to come together at last Adam and the first number on our list today is 48 
Yep, 48. It was interesting that Jones always said that his proudest innings for Australia, or his best innings for Australia, something like that, was his first, where he didn't raise the bat. He made uh, 48, batting at number seven uh, at Port of Spain in 1984. So he doesn't sort of immediately bash the door down for national selection, takes him a year to make a first-class 100, ends up making 199 against West Australia and gets on that trip uh, in early 1984. So the week before he turns 23, he makes his test debut and makes 48 across 104 deliveries. But the way that he told, told the story was that in that era, before the restrictions on short balls, he would face, you know, maybe two balls and over in his half and had to make the best of those. So uh, the fact that he made it to that number, he was always super proud of in a test match, which Australia actually did draw. So in a time and an era where Australia was struggling so much against the West Indies, the fact that they got that shared result uh, in the first test was something he was super proud of and, and played an important role, given that he walked to the middle at you know five for 85 and, and they managed to get 255 as he sort of held things together in the lower order. So I thought it was good for us to kick off with 48 being the number that he was so proud of. Was there an indication of why he was back out of the team for a couple of years? You know, they they had a look at him and kind of saw that he had something to offer, but then there, there was kind of a suggestion that selectors were protecting him from that West Indies attack over that period of time. Yeah, interesting, because he remained gutted about being left off the 85 Ashes tour. So I don't think his first-class numbers, as I understand it, were quite as compelling as they became later as far as national selection was concerned. But it was clear he was a prodigy. I mean, obviously, the the son of a famous club cricketer in Melbourne, Barney Jones, at the Carlton Cricket Club where he played at that stage. And he was destined to sort of go on and have a, an illustrious career, I think, from early on. Well, that certainly was the impression of people that watched him when he was young. Uh, but yeah, it took him those couple of years to go from being a, I think he was a, essentially a fill-in in that team. He, mm. It was the second test of the series. He played one more out of a five-game series and he was back out of the side and yeah, it took some time to get back in time for the uh, 86 tie test. Yeah, well, he, he only debuted in first-class cricket in 82, so I guess pretty early days. Um, and, and so it's interesting mm. that it's mm. early days as well. It's his third test match when our next number comes around, the one that we've had come up on Nerd Pledge a number of times. A, a lot of people love this number in relation to Dean Jones, uh, 210, of course, is the number. Yeah, and Jeff, I suppose because we've talked about it so much on Nerd Pledge, we've kind of said it all in a way. We both touched on it in the pieces that we've written, but, you know, walking in at number three, I think what's missed in all of it, though, is that it's his third test match. By then, you know that he debuts in 84, and you know that he has this long career, but because he played one-day cricket in 84, 85, 86, you forget that it's only the third time he's actually had the chance to play for Australia and the first time in two and a half years nearly. So it's not as though he was walking out there as a, sort of an established member of that team, although he was the the first choice to play in that first mm. test. It, it was it was the start of something. Not you know, Usually when players make a big score, it's part of a purple patch or they're well-established when it was different here and, you know, 502 minutes at the, at the crease and batting through 50 degree heat. Uh, the famous exchange with Alan Border about um, getting a Queenslander and Greg Ritchie to come out and do the job if he wasn't willing to continue. Not remembering the last 100 runs, you know, losing control of bodily functions, the drip he was on afterwards. All of this just adds to the mystique of what's one of the most remarked upon innings and test matches ever, given it's one of only two ties. But yeah, I kind of love the fact that even though we he's renowned for his white ball theatrics and extraordinary uh, play that we talked about before, it was a test match innings, uh, one that required you know grit and guts and all the rest. That 
it goes down as his most well remembered. And I suppose the way that he played the spinners there um, was, was was white ball and its influence coming down the track time and time again. But yes, two ten, a number that we know well on on story time and uh, and one that um, will never be forgotten as far as it's uh, identifiable to Dino. I thought it was particularly interesting and, and quite moving actually. Is it some comments came up from an interview that he'd done where he spoke about. Ellen Border telling him that he would be batting at number three, and um, Dino said he was he was really moved. He was really emotional about that because he he thought about the history of that batting position in Australia. He thought about Bradman and Greg Chappell, and he thought you know he was still a young player, still developing, and he thought I'm going to be part of that tradition. I'm going to be part of that history. I'm I'm batting first drop for Australia, and that was part of what drove him on to you know to, to put in that performance in his first opportunity um batting first at, at first drop to uh, to put together that really big score to drive australia to that big score that enabled them in the end to tie the test match when they'd been and they'd been going really badly over the previous couple of years they'd lost to new zealand at home and away they'd lost the uh, the the 85 mm-hmm. ashes they hadn't had a win in a couple of years against anybody in a series and so you know they'd india had drawn last time they'd come to tour australia so the fact that they got that tie was really significant it, you know it wasn't like a, a a win that got away it was it was a, a real result to go to india and tie a test match yeah, and, and they talked about that, didn't they, in that fantastic documentary that was made probably 15 years ago or so now by the ABC where it was a tie, sure, but it was a platform. And the year later, they, they returned to India and they go and win the World Cup. And I think that, you know, the, the origins of all of that, and that really brings us to our next number, really, in, in 121. And this might seem like a strange innings to pluck out, but it's where Jones made two centuries in a row in what they called the Benson and Hedges Challenge. I think this was the series that corresponded with the America's Cup, possibly, where they uh, had right. Pakistan and England and maybe India come to town okay. all over in Perth. And they played a, a one-day quadrangular or, or something like that. And Jones made back back hundreds but this was the the second of those one two one in one thirteen balls you know a strike rate of 107 that was kind of unheard of then but by this point it's when he kind of clicks into that next gear it's he's the first name on the team mm. sheet he's the most important player in the 50 overside in this case they actually lost the game they lost by one wicket to Pakistan with one ball remaining but what he did at the start was sort of a sign of things to come and that reaches its maturity in that little chapter I suppose you would say in the World Cup where Jones batting at number three averages 44 across the tournament in excess of 350 runs and you know set and forget and that top order of Boone, Marsh and Jones who basically laid the foundation to uh, enabling Australia to win the World Cup against all expectations in India in 1987 which was truly the start of the Alan Border era. See I would have thought if there was something in the the later 80s around the America's Cup called the Benson and Hedges Challenge, it would have been something like, you know, it would have been something Bob Hawke was trying to do, like, can you suck down 60 <laughs> darts during an evening session? That's the Benson and Hedges Challenge. You know, get through get through three packs of the best by tomorrow morning. So it's interesting that it was a cricket tournament. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's right. And look, even though he keeps making all these runs in, in one-day cricket through that period, this is when his test form drops a wee bit and you reach the, the summer of 88, 89, where the West Indies do at times toy with Australia. We remember Border and the wickets that he took at the, the Sydney Cricket Ground. And yes, Jones did make 100 at Sydney in 86, 87 as well. A big 100, 187, another one of our nerd pledge numbers from yesteryear. But it's 
in 1988. 89 uh, against the touring West Indies team who again Jones had that history with going back to his first test match in 1984 four years earlier where he made his highest score in test cricket 216 in 347 balls everybody remembers that partnership with Merv Hughes where they came together when the score was eight for 383 and they put on 114 the two great mates great friends from Victoria Hughes was the not out man on 72 but yes Jones just making sure that he would get on the Ashes tour I suppose mm. you could say by that point of the summer it was the fifth and final test match across the just after the Australia Day weekend you know right at the fag end of 1988-89 and because he had a poor summer there was no guarantee he'd be in the squad much as it was in 85 but that made sure he'd be a tourist in 89 and as I mentioned before it went on to be his highest score in Test cricket and made against Patrick Patterson, Kirtley Ambrose, Malcolm Marshall, Courtney Walsh. I mean, it does not get much better than that. Mm. And that takes you on to the next number, which is 566. I just, again, thought that that overarching number, the number of runs that Jones made in the 89 Ashes series. Again, we think of Mark Taylor making in excess of 700 runs, what he and Jeff Marsh did, what Steve Ward did. But there was Jones in the middle of it all, averaging 70.8 across that series, a century at Edgbaston, a brilliant 100 at the Oval to finish the series. He struck a big double 100 in the tour games as well, 268, which was the highest score made in England in 1989. And all of that combined was, well, not only enough for him to be part of that historic record-breaking Australian team to win and reclaim the Ashes in England for the first time since 1934, but it was also recognised as one of the Wisdom Five Cricketers of the, of the year in 1990 as a, as a consequence. So, man of the match at the Oval, another tonne of Edgbaston, uh, a member of the Wisdom Five after 566 runs at nearly 71 in the Ashes of 1989, where he was so important there coming in at number four. Yeah, and it's interesting, as you say, that, you know, even for me, if I think of 89, I don't really think of Dean Jones you know he's not he's 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 not among the the top three or four most prominent names so you think of as having an influence on that series he's kind of historically become peripheral in that series but in terms of contribution wasn't actually peripheral at all yeah and he was always really proud of having been part of that team you know whenever there was some sort of maybe not reunion but whenever there was anything around 89 uh, Dino was front and center of that because to him that was well it was it was the there'll always be Madras and yes there's the double hundred in Adelaide but as far as what he's most the most important I suppose uh, contribution he made in test cricket across an entire series Mm. was that 89 Ashes series uh, and that team which you know again under Alan Border we're talking about how important that era is in bridging the bad old days of the rebel tours and post world series cricket and so on and that period of time when it wasn't necessarily that exciting and bridging into the 90s which was so exciting that 89 Ashes series capped a decade perfectly. So if that's the number where he's maybe, you know, in in the background a little bit, the next number is the one where he's absolutely in the foreground. This is the Dean Jones number. You know, this is this is the one maybe second to the 210, but but it's right up there in terms of Dino One Day King. The number is relevant to the city that I'm in at the moment. It's relevant to the Gabba. It is 145. Yeah, this is the one where, as a boy... 1990 so this was December 1990 so I would have been at the end of grade prep I know where I was it was a Sunday afternoon I was in Wood End at my 
uncle's house we were watching it on the television <laughs> wouldn't miss a ball you know those sixes he hit onto the dog track the one-handed six the the one that went straight back over the bowler's head I actually don't remember who was bowling at, at the death it might have been uh, poor old Martin Bicknell who copped the treatment there but in any case and you know, that piece of Richie Benno commentary when he says oh reach out and catch it Jeffrey and, and all of that mm-hmm. um, it was the record uh, score for Australia in a one-day international at the time I think that was the record until Adam Gilchrist broke it about a decade or so later uh, when he was bursting onto the scene as an opener. But yeah, the 145, because it was the record, because it was just so bloody dominant. I mean, 145, again, 136 balls, better than a run of ball, batting through the majority of the innings, having walked in at one for 24, and they're all the way to the end, more or less. He's out with a few overs to go when Australia have already put themselves in such a commanding position. So, yeah, it, it, to me, and, and I think I mentioned on Nerd Pledge when this came up a couple of weeks ago, he also bowled the 50th over. So at, um, when, at the end of the day, you push all the way through and overs 49 and 50 were bowled by Border and Jones uh, when the game was well and truly safe in their keeping. So, yeah, a momentous day. Jones at his most ridiculous really as far as the Mm. running between wickets and the way he was dancing the way he was striking that wide stance which was so wide at that part of his career I think it kind of narrowed up a bit as he got a bit deeper into it but then it was so wide it was the calling it was the yes no wait there and all of the different things that we would try and mimic you can see it all in the highlights package of the 145 which yeah I mean one of his masterpieces if not the masterpiece when it comes to white ball cricket I've watched the the one-handed six last night just over and I just kept rewinding it and and having another look because you know this is it's not a good ball it's outside leg stump but it's so far outside leg stump that he's got to catch up with it and that's why he ends up one-handed with his left hand only because he's trying to get around his pads (laughs) and he does catch up with it and literally ends up with the bat just in his left hand swinging through so hard that the bat ends up pointing right up at the sky and somehow gets enough of a swing through that ball that it carries for six. It is it is one of the most truly ridiculous cricket shots I've ever seen, you know, and, until you kind of come to the modern era and you start having things like Kevin Peterson hitting the, the switch hit flamingo shots and that kind of thing. You don't really see anything that ridiculous until like you know maybe Gilchrist with a couple of his periscope shots over the keeper or that sort of thing but you know particularly in in that age of of you know you remember talking to Vic Marks in that interview we did with him where he was saying as a bowler in in one day 50 over cricket as an off spinner it was it was really simple because he said you know you'd pop a deep mid wicket out at a long on and and every batsman would respectfully pat a single to one of them and and take the run you know they didn't they didn't just hit you for three sixes (laughs) over the league side because that wasn't the done thing and so to play that sort of shot at the time is uh, I think it, it says an awful lot about what was going on on that day yeah and I mean he didn't play a reverse sweep that day but in a way that that kind of is the equivalent of what that shot became by that I mean something that you never would have seen until the, the T20 era which again I said this off the top but he would have dominated T20 cricket and we would, he would have really enjoyed it I assume he would have dominated it but uh, yes it, it sort of it shows uh, it says something about his strength his ingenuity uh, his resourcefulness and uh, yeah it was a tremendously exciting day all told the next number following the 145 is 532 what does this suggest Adam? Well, 532, this is where the story takes a bit of a negative turn, really, isn't it? So, this is from the, the summer of 1992 93. So, January 93, 
the final. It's SCG. It's West Indies, Australia. Of course, they're always West Indies, Australia in that area. It was part of the mm. part of the charm, wasn't it? That the West Indies were always in town. But I mean, they're chasing two forty to win the first final. It's very gettable by this stage. Ninety three, five runs and over. That's doable. And the complication here is that Jones have been dropped from the Test team. Rocked up at Brisbane uh, for the first test in December, about a month before, and he wasn't on the team sheet. Damian Martin was. He was left out, despite the fact that he'd made an unbeaten 100 uh, in Sri Lanka two tests before. He led the averages in Sri Lanka, but they'd made a call on him. They made a call that he was going to continue playing white ball cricket. He wasn't going to play in the test side. He was left out, and they were moving on at the time. And it was a... Deeply controversial decision. Mm. The, amount of, the number of conspiracy theories that whizzed around about that and probably still do to this day, really. Yeah. But in any case, it was the white ball where he had a chance to sort of push back a little bit. And he didn't do especially well. He was still a dominant player, but the aura had just come off him a wee bit. So there was, there's always context to when Jones, who again, batting at number three, as he always did, um, and again, having sort of not been as bigger part of the World Cup campaign in the previous summer as he might have liked. He was playing for the most part, but with the exception of a, a big 90-odd against India, he wasn't sort of front and centre of that World Cup as he would have hoped to have been. Mm. Um, and here he was in the first final against the West Indies and coming in and making the decision to ask Kirtley Ambrose to remove his wristbands. Now, I don't think it was in isolation. I think it, it all ties in, the idea that... And I think he... You know, he talked about this at some at some stage as well. The idea that he was frustrated, uh, he was trying to prove a point. He was trying to stick it to Ambrose and stick it to the West Indies, sort of the best way he knew how. And as a provocateur, which he was, this was that. It was a statement to the West Indies, and in the end, it backfires badly. He's out, not to Ambrose. It should be said after that fearsome spell, Kenny Benjamin picks him up, but Ambrose down the other end runs rampant, takes five for thirty-two. The West Indies win in a canter in the end. They go to Adelaide the next week in the Test match. Kirtley Ambrose again. Then they go to Perth, seven for one, mm-hmm. and a lot of people went back to the. Jones' decision and said, well, the, the catalyst for Ambrose running rampant at the back end of that tour can be all linked back to the, to the wristband incident, which didn't help his cause at the time. But, yes, yeah, a moment that's been replayed a million times and will be a million more. But, yeah, just as things, I mean, you know, often that's shown as a, a sign of Dino being kind of in control or doing as he pleased, when really I think it was more a, a sign of defiance when things weren't quite as, they, as, they, as he may have hoped they have been at this stage of his career. I reckon for me this is one of these instances of cricket or you see it in a lot of sports I suppose of of the magical thinking applied to whatever has happened where you go well this team you know this football team lost because their bus got lost and they had to spend an extra 40 minutes on the bus or something like we look at correlation as causation all the time so sure Curtly Ambrose was annoyed and then he took some wickets but there is absolutely no way to put those two things together as a causative thing. Kirtley Ambrose yeah. took 400-plus test wickets. Who's to say he wouldn't have taken seven for one anyway? You know, who's, he was definitely good sure, enough to do yeah. it. He probably would have been pretty motivated to do well in test matches against Australia because he usually was. You know, so the idea that uh, Kirtley Ambrose went on a rampage because he was annoyed about his wristbands, I mean, out of all the things that he could have been upset about, I, I, like, yeah, he said that he was irritated by it, but... I just think it's kind of ridiculous to try to put that down as the link and say that's why it happened. You know, Kirtley Ambrose took a shitload of wickets because yeah. he was a really good bowler and that's probably why it happened. Absolutely. But yes, it, it sort of stands alone, doesn't it? That that spell when Ambrose is bouncing him and raging mm. after being asked to take the wristbands off it. It neatly sums up that Jones 
best form of defence was always attack, mm. whatever it was. And even when it came to the way he would, even if it put everyone else in the firing line, yeah. as it were, on that night and leaving them exposed. But Even if it didn't um, end up leaving him in a great position at the time, having to deal with the consequences. The the number coming up after that, this is one of your favourites. I know you, you think about this one a lot. You talk about it a lot. Uh, the number is 98. This is a, a weird innings in a way. So I went back and looked at the card before. It doesn't look particularly important, really. 98 off, you know, 124 balls. So only three boundaries and a six. But what I remember about this day at the Gabba again in January 1994. So we press fast forward a year here when he wasn't in the Ashes squad of 93, much to his dismay. You know, he wasn't in the test team in 93, 94 against South Africa, but he was in the one day try series with New Zealand mm. and South Africa. And they were a fantastic attack to South Africans after their readmission, of course, with Varney de Villiers leading the way, Alan Donald and, and so on. But in the one day series, Jones still had that prized number three spot. And this day was stinking hot at the Gabba, absolutely steaming. Much as it was those years earlier in Madras and he was the first player as I recall to wear one of those ice collars and that wasn't because uh, you know as he batted through the innings I mean again coming in pretty early uh, and batting uh, all the way through uh, until uh, looking back here he was out you know perhaps in the 45th 46th over he got bold dancing down the wicket to Rundle uh, medium pace I think it was I think Dave Rundle bold medium pace for 98 which was absolutely galling I remember watching it with my brother in the living room as kids and we were just absolutely devastated when he got himself out there but what was the defining characteristic of that innings was it was Jones at his most rampant between the wickets we sort of touched on it before but the way that he not hustled, but sprinted like an Olympian every time he had to make it past that 22 yards. And he didn't run 22 yards. He ran about 18 before sliding in, turning blind, putting his hand on the turf and cannoning down the other end for a second. I mean, the way that he turned ones into twos and twos into threes and all the rest. Well, that started with Jones, the the defiant calling, the sprinting between the wickets and the, the technique that he did it with. So, yeah, effectively blind turning because, again, he saw a marginal improvement to be had every time that he was galloping down there. So that's what I remember that innings for. In the heat, the collar around his neck, two runs short of 100, which would have been just spectacular in terms of advancing the course for him to be put back in the, the test team. But it wasn't to be... And, as it turned out, that was kind of the last hurrah in Australia for Australia. Um, he got taken to South Africa. He had a poor run, gets dropped. And Dino being Dino, what did he do? He abruptly retired. So what would have been the Alan Border end of career became the Alan Border and Dean Jones end of career when mm-hmm. Dino said, that's it, I'm done, which was abrupt and unnecessary and provocative but again completely in keeping with what what Dino was at that point of his career particularly given they played eight one day as over there they played four before the test matches and four after so he played seven of eight one day as missed the eighth and was like I'm never playing again (laughs) if I don't get to play the eight thirty I I'm out Um, (laughs) it's also particularly good that there was a a, a not at all quick bowler whose last name was Rundle you know if you want your rhyming sling to work time, time for a day Dave Rundle, you know, time for a trundle. Um, just get, get someone on to, to ease a couple down to the other end. Uh, so that leads us into one of the biggest numbers, one of the, the most entertaining. The number is 324, Adam, set the scene. I remember this. Okay, so Jones has retired from international cricket. I don't know why, but he has. 94, 95, he's still captain of Victoria. And they have a great season uh, and win the Mercantile Mutual Cup. You know, Jones, brilliant in that tournament. I think he 
was second in the runs across the comp, averaged 53. But in first-class cricket, this was the comeback. This was the not just wanting to play one-day cricket for Australia again, but wanting to show that he was every bit as good as he had been as a red ball player as well. Goes on to make 1,200 runs at 76 in the Shield, averaging you know, 76 and making four tons. Imagine a player did that these days. Imagine a player made mm. 12, 12, 16 runs in the Shield at 76. They'd be, they'd be straight back into the Test 11, but not Jones. And the high watermark of that was his unbeaten 324 in a day-night Sheffield Shield uh, match at the MCG in February 95. I remember I was playing this day but it was a Saturday where it ended and seeing the pictures on the TV news when people got wind of the fact that Dino was doing something special Mm. and they poured through the gates as the day session became night and uh, and the floodlights were on there at the MCG and there's Dino uh, making this unbeaten triple ton 3-2-4 not out uh, across 523 minutes in the middle which actually isn't that much when you consider how many runs he made so a pretty decent strike rate of 72 but it was right at the end of that season and it was kind of the perfect jumping off point to say that you know what, I'm now back. I'm available mm. for selection again. So he went from being unavailable, not that it would have mattered, because they asked him to actually, and Gilly and I, um, Shannon Gill and I, and Dan Bredig as part of our Greater Season That Was project doing the Australia A shows that we did uh, earlier this year, we actually tried to get in touch with Dino about this and we, we didn't get much of a reply from him. In fact, he basically said no to our question, which was, did you volunteer yourself to be captain of Australia A in 94-95? And he, it was all reported at the time that he was going to be and he was volunteering himself now that he'd retired to kind of shepherd the kids through and all the rest of it. And he pretty much pushed back on that and said that wasn't the case. But interesting that instead of that, he played for Victoria, won the Mercantile Mutual, made 1,200 first-class runs Mm. and clocked a triple century. And now he was in and around that sort of testimonial game as well that I mentioned before where Plucker Duck played (laughs) and Gary Ablett's playing and Jason Dunstall and Dermot Burton and all the rest, all these superstar footballers. David Gower came out from England for it, if I recall correctly. But now, you know, Dino had gone from being retired and and, and on the outer to well and truly back in business. Mm. And and it's echoed 20 years later by Kevin Peterson, you know, another exile on the outer, makes a triple hundred in first-class cricket and it's still not enough because those in charge have decided... They don't want you around anymore. So he misses the 1996 World Cup. Australia go over there. They make the final. They lose to Sri Lanka and that Aravinda de Silva special um, and lose the final. And they come back in a very quick turnaround. They come back to Australia and I think four days after they've lost that World Cup final, Australia is turning out again at the MCG for a, a strange sort of reason. It's like the 100th anniversary of the Victorian Cricket Association or something like that. That's right. They're playing a World Eleven, and the World Eleven features one DM Jones versus Australia, and the number is one hundred and three. This was just like I I can't tell you how good this felt. Like he gets picked for Australia A in ninety five, ninety six against the West Indies. I think it's New Year's Day. Batting so well against Ambrose, smashing him everywhere, his old adversary. And then he's sawn off leg before wicket to Otis Gibson, a ball that, as our dear friend and patron Simon Wallace made the point on social media, would have gone over the top of the Empire State Building. And Jones is truly sawn off on 30-odd, but Dino magic stuff. Dino magic stuff until that point. Batting in the cap uh, in the Australia A outfit. No helmet to be required, despite the fact that it was the West Indies. And that's it. He picked in a provisional 30-man squad, which I think they named in December. And a couple of days after that Australia A game, they whittled it down to 
15 or 16, however many they were taking to India for that tournament. And Jones wasn't there. And it was just devastating. And the thought that he would have made it had he not been sawn off was inescapable. Mm. It, was a, it, was the, it was the obvious conclusion. Look, whether it was true or not, who's to know? But as kids, we believed it. And then after that World Cup, where we're so aggrieved that he wasn't there... It's it's proof positive how highly he's rated because this world eleven they go no no well, you can bat number three for the world eleven on your home ground mm. and he goes on to bat through the innings on a tough track as well so it's not a flamboyant Jones innings only three boundaries and that one six in the final over um, Jones is on ninety seven Mark Wall's bowling the fiftieth over when he was sort of doing a lot more bowling in that era bowling his off spin picked up a couple of wickets and Dino came down the track and deposited Mark War into the bottom deck of the Southern Stand uh, at, down at Longoff. And it's just where my brother and I were at the time. And I said this on, a, on another interview that I was doing earlier today. If I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure we were in tears. Everyone was so emotionally mm. involved. And you watch the footage back, the, the G is heaving. This isn't Australia versus the World Eleven. This is Dino against the fucking establishment. This is Dino against everything that had happened yeah. across the two or three previous years. All the injustices, all the slights, all the affronts, all the back and forth which he helped propel with his indiscreet comments in the media, how he was going after selectors, how after he went after Bob Simpson and nearly got himself bloody sued at one point when he went after the Australian coach. All of this is going on very much front of house and he gets his one opportunity and he absolutely makes it count. Uh, 103 at the MCG, I mean truly one of the best moments of my time watching cricket it was such a an emotional release in the end australia went comfortably but who fucking cares dino matatani stuck it right up him and it's not an australian ground supporting australia it's the mcg supporting dean jones against australia at the time like they they did not care that this was the national team there was the loyalties were absolutely clear at that time uh the 103 is followed numerically by 1,502. So, yeah, making these runs for Victoria, so many of them, flows through to the other side of the world as well. Loved playing in England, which we talked about earlier regarding 1989 and how badly he wanted to go to England in 1993, which just wasn't going to happen. But you know, he jumped to 1996, gets that chance to captain Derbyshire. He'd played for Durham in the past, but here he was at running the show. He was the skipper. He was the boss. Uh, and made in excess of 1,500 runs uh, and led them to a second finish in the county championship, which was their best result for six decades. So the reason I wanted to mention this is that his first stint as captain didn't go well for Jones in the late 80s. He relinquished the captaincy, said that he wasn't ready for it, said that it diminished his batting, eventually came back to skipper Victoria. But there was a time there when the jury was out as to whether Jones was the right man to be a leader. Well, by the end of his career, he was doing fine things in in the county championship there with Derbyshire. But, you know, as with a lot of stories with with Jones, it isn't as simple as that, is it? So you go back to 1997 and everybody remembers the tour game where Australia played Derbyshire and it was Dean Jones against Australia again and (laughs) and Mark Taylor and the subplot of that. But it wasn't long before Dino fell out uh, with the team uh, there at Derbyshire and and that was that. He left the club uh, without completing the season in 1997. But at 96, they look back upon so fondly at that club. Jeff, you've been there a few times yeah. now and called a couple of tour games there yourself. You know that it's a pretty close-knit community up there as far as the county club. They're always under threat um, of going out of business, really. But they look back at 96 as being a real golden season and in no small part due to Dino. So is that something that you 
have ended up having conversations with people about when you're knocking about that part of the country? Yeah, I, didn't, did, I think we both did last year, did we not? I feel like you and I had a conversation with someone, uh, whether it was last year or the year before, when uh, they wanted to talk to us about, about Dino and how influential he was <laughs> in that short time at the club. And to think it's all these years later and they meet an Australian and the first thing they want to do is talk about um, Dean Jones, I think, sort of speaks volumes about the impact he, he had there in a, in a short space of time. But also that, you know, he was abrupt as a leader. Um, there's some... Jared Kimber touched on this on, in his wonderful tribute about uh, the way in which Jones would fall out with his teammates, that, that he had high standards, that, that if you didn't meet his standards, that you would, uh, you would suffer the sharp tongue that he clearly had. Mm. Uh, so whilst we celebrated that sharp tongue when it came to pushing back against administrators, when it came to taking risks about uh, commenting publicly about matters that are normally kept private, the other side of that is that it wasn't always ideal to have him as your skipper on that front. But on the other side of it, he, he did bring success uh, to Victoria in that in that Mercantile Mutual Cup in 94-95 and then uh, again uh, with... Um, Derbyshire getting them to second and nearly winning the thing in 96 as one of the smaller sides. Yeah, I guess it's about uh, power and power dynamics and, you know, whether you're going up the chain or or down the chain. But it's interesting that it's such Mm. a consistent part of the cricket story over decades, if if not centuries, that there's always this antipathy towards administration but there are always these administrations that don't help themselves either that are that are really opaque when it comes to their decision making that that don't bring their public into the decision making and kind of set themselves up as a as some sort of higher authority that only hands down decrees rather than reasoning you know it's it's interesting that there's there's immediately support for someone who is taking it up to the selectors everybody's like yep <laughs> yep we're on the we're on the side of uh, you know you know whose side they're going to be on in that fight yeah that's it and and that tension and friction was uh yeah, embodied by Jones throughout that sort of strange period. We kind of, you know, where it begins at the start of that summer of 92, 93, and it stretches really all the way to the end. He finishes up with Victoria in uh, 1998, and that's it. And, you know, fair enough too. By that stage, he's been a, a first-class player for 16 years. He's kind of done it all, really. Mm. Yeah, didn't get back to play for Australia again, but finished with the public wanting more, finished with 30,124 runs in all forms of professional cricket with 74 centuries. I mean, that's just a, a massive number. Uh, and when you consider most of that cricket was played in Australia, it's not as though he was a, a county pro coming in and out and uh, racking up huge amounts of centuries each year. He did that for a few seasons, but not every year uh, through his career. It, 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 yeah, it kind of speaks to how prolific he was, how he did convert, he did make big hundreds, he did define matches when he got in. Sure, he missed out a lot as well. He wasn't a great starter, but when he got in and when he was set, he was so difficult to get out, and that's why that mm. centuries column is such a... A high number sitting in it uh, when he yeah, did finally finish up in in 1998. And I think that when he left Jeff, and you'd remember this as well, of course, when we would go to the MCG as kids, the Bring Back Dino signs were a, were a fixture <laughs> of 
uh, one day international cricket in Australia for, I mean, I reckon I saw one about five years ago yeah. even. You still see them, but certainly in the late 90s, early 2000s, for at least a decade, let's say, after he finished up formally, the Bring Back Dino movement, it was more than just signs at the ground. It was a true movement. Mm. And, you know, I used to still joke until, I don't know, I would have said until a few years ago um, that Dino should be batting number three for Australia in the one day team. And I meant it because yeah. as far as I was concerned, that he, he never should have been left out to begin with. I, I'm pretty sure I've heard you say it probably within the last, 12 months even but I think we should I think we should make a point uh, of whether it's this summer or not whether anyone's actually allowed in the grounds uh, but you know when one day games are played in Australia that banner should come out you know Dino bring, bring back Dino because that's I think that's what people want at this stage where we're, we're farewelling someone who's had such an emotional impact on people and, and that's been what's really stood out in the last day or so that in in the response is just how just how deeply emotional the impact was that he had on people as a player um and as you said particularly people of a certain generation but it's i keep being a bit overwhelmed by this um this realization that to for for one individual person to have produced and and created and caused so much joy in the lives of so many other people, you know. And, and I think he did know. I think people let him know. I think that it, he, that was constantly reinforced. And you know, it, it's not the sort of case where he left this world not knowing what the impact was that he had. But it, it's it's just it's such a, a wonderful thing for a person, an individual human being, to be able to produce that much joy in others. Yeah, I, I think that's really well summed up as far as this generation of people. I mean, sure, he goes on to have this post-career, which, you know, is longer than his playing career. He finished up in 98 and he was calling an IPL game the night that he passed away. Um, so I suppose for two decades after the playing bit was finished, he continued to make this big contribution as a coach, PSL. I mean, I always kind of felt, and I put this in the obituary that I wrote for The Guardian for him, you know, sometimes they say a prophet, you know, is never welcome in their hometown. And it's not that he wasn't welcome in his hometown. Of course he was welcome in Melbourne. He was one of Melbourne's greatest sons. But when it came to coaching gigs and commentary spots and so on, he wasn't as prominent here as he was in other parts of the world and that even accounts for the fact that he did have that you know high profile bad stumble on television in 2006 when describing Hashim Amla as a terrorist a moment that he thought he was off air he was on air whatever it doesn't really matter the point of the matter is is that I think that was a turning point for him whereas with some people a moment like that can occur they can get called a racist or worse and they can lean into that descriptor he went the other way and made a point of really turning to Asia whether it was in the Pakistan Super League, visiting that country kind of before it was fashionable to do so mm. again. He was one of the early adapters. Remember, he was unable to get into there on a couple of years ago, a few passport issues and so on. But still, that's where he was coaching Islamabad United, yeah. where he worked with the Karachi Kings. He coached the Afghanistan national side in 2017. At their time of trial, uh, they, they didn't have a coach for a tournament. There was Dino, because he was held in such high regard in that part of the world. There's a reason why he was on Indian television more than he was on Australian television, because over there, the respect he carried as a pioneer and as a thinker, 
and as someone who had a million ideas. I mean, they joked about it on the IPL coverage last night about his little red book. This wasn't something I was necessarily across, but that he would scribble all these theories in his little red book and he would read them out on television. I mean, and we saw that in his columns, which, you know, it's not as though I agreed with every word that he wrote in The Age, incidentally. I mean, I had a disagreement with him about something a couple of years ago on, on Twitter around something that he wrote. But I think he knew, and, you know, you said this yourself a second ago, Jeff, that he knew how much we loved him. And I made that point pretty clear to him through that, you know, little exchange that I, I, I can't stress to you how much I respect your opinion and defer to you. Uh, this isn't about not having regard and respect. I just have a disagreement on this on this particular point. Mm. It doesn't really matter what the point was. And he was okay with that. It was totally cool after that. And I have this enduring, lovely memory. We, we talked about the 96 uh, World 11th century. We were at a pub in Perth a few years ago and I was having a drink with him and a number of others and we got to talking about that. I don't know how the conversation ended up there, probably because of me. And we were talking about that particular afternoon at the G and how important that was and, and all the rest. And he didn't know that the shirt had been on sale mm. on the internet from that day. He, the shirt he wore that day somehow wound up in a frame somewhere and was being sold for like $8,000, <laughs> if memory serves me correctly. So I figure that, you know, he's pretty crazy and it continued to be online. And he found that just fascinating. He's like, why? Like, how's that? Yeah. Like, he was bewildered by that. But at the same time, I think he kind of knew why it cost that much. I think he kind of got at some level that, there were these people. I mean, again, to draw back to what Jared wrote, this is, it can't be coincidental that so many people who talk and write about cricket come from Melbourne of a certain age. I never thought about it until it was put in these terms, but it must be, there's something in that. Mm. There's something in that. And, and, and the extent to which Jones and Dino, the Dino phenomenon, informs that, well, it's certainly not all of it, but I don't think it's none of it either. Mm. At some level, at some degree, the Dino thing the Dino phenomenon has I think influenced uh, a, a, the game into the future in ways that he couldn't have possibly imagined when he started out as a kid as a prodigy uh, at Carlton uh, and then through that extraordinary Australian and domestic career which we've detailed today and then into that post cricket post playing career which ended up being so influential as well well if you're someone who's listening to this and who's feeling the sadness you know feeling that 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 strange ache that you have when when someone's gone who y- you never knew you didn't know them as a person but they you you knew them as an idea you know they were a part of your life then we we understand that and we know that a lot of people are, are feeling that at the moment and it's you know I, I suppose it's it's one of those turning point moments for everybody else where if if that's particularly if that's part of your childhood this is a point where you realize you're not young anymore then that's that's a long time it's a long time ago you know and we shouldn't have had to think about this and have you know have have these reminiscences and so on for another 20 years or so but here we are doing it now so you know in some ways it's been really special the last day or so seeing this this really unified outpouring of affection and love and appreciation for what someone did in the game that we love you know it, it, it comes from a sad place but there's still something beautiful about it yeah yeah there, there definitely is as you say it shouldn't take um, someone passing away before you are able to interrogate these uh, sort of 
moments and feelings and emotions that, that go hand in hand with it. But it's been a real stark reminder for me of why this all matters to me so much. You know, I said elsewhere that I've since, I, you know, there's that expression, you only get one childhood hero. Well, you know, I don't necessarily sign up to that. Mm. But if I were to have one when it comes to cricket, it was Dino. And I did pretty well there because you don't, you know, the other thing about you don't want to meet your heroes. Well, I was lucky to meet mine. And as I say, I'm not saying that we were great mates down the pub or whatever it is. It wasn't that kind of relationship, but I did know him and he did know me, at least at some level. And we, uh, I was able to, you know, share some of these reminiscences with him. And I'm really, really so glad that's the case. I'm glad that I didn't kind of avoid him. I'm glad that I didn't kind of feel daunted by him because now I, I at least had that small window of time over that period of three or four years or whatever it was when we from time to time spoke that I can look back on from a purely selfish perspective and, and know that I got to have that opportunity. But it wouldn't. I don't think I would have had that opportunity if not for him in the first place. So it kind of comes full circle again and the influence he's had on my life and, and will continue to do so. I think that now when I watch white ball cricket, and I respect and uh, regard the acts that we see, especially from pioneering batsmen. I'll, I'll remember, next time I'm watching Glenn Maxwell, I'll remember that Glenn Maxwell doesn't happen without Dean Jones. Mm. Next, next time we're, we're having a conversation about the next big thing, the next, the next player who, who comes along and takes our breath away, I'll know that that doesn't happen unless Dean Jones happens first. And I think that well, what more can you say in terms of his legacy as a player and then as far as what he did off the field in terms of nurturing talent, uh, supporting the game, forward thinking, it's, it, it really is the exemplar. And he wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. But nor is anyone. And we shouldn't try and deify people when they pass away. We should just give an accurate reflection on what we think they were. And in the case of Jones and in the case of Dino, he was a fucking extraordinary human being. This is the final word. Story time. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And today was the story of Dean Jones. The show is brought to you on the Bad Producer Productions Network. Thanks to DC for doing the edits. Thanks to everyone for listening in. If you want to tell us a Dino story, get in touch with us about it. Uh, Finalwordcricket at gmail.com. You can drop us a line, get us in the Twitter things or the patron dms or whatever it may be and i think we'll call it for this week and this episode here thanks dino it was a great ride and dean jones will get a standing ovation from this packed ground here at the gabba what a magnificent spectacle it was had to go about it.